Why are laws failing to protect women from violence, and what is being done to change this? Join us as we explore these questions and more. This is Spotlight, Justice for Women, a podcast from the Wilson Center. O acesso à justiça. As leis não são suficientes. I'm Anya Prusa, Senior Associate at the Wilson Center's Brazil Institute, and your host for this episode of Spotlight, Justice for Women. Despite having excellent laws on the books, Brazil had a record number of femicides in 2019, even as the number of overall murders in the country fell. I am joined today by Dabney Evans, Associate Professor of Global Health at Emory University and an expert on femicide and intimate partner violence. We discuss what gender-based violence looks like in Brazil and some of the measures and programs currently underway to address this problem. Dabney, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So I want to start this conversation by asking, what is femicide? And what do we know about femicide and intimate partner violence more broadly in terms of risk factors and prevention measures? And are there also gaps in our knowledge? What are the things that we don't yet know? Absolutely. So um, generally speaking, femicide is defined as the gender-based killing of women. And I consider it to be an extreme form of intimate partner violence. And of course, gender-based violence is a large umbrella that it can include a lot of different types of violence that can happen across the life course. This can include things like infanticide um, before the birth of a girl child or even infanticide after a child has been born, things like malnutrition, young girl children not being able to eat the same as their male peers, um, dating violence. We see violence across the life force in, in, in many forms. And intimate partner violence is something that affects women and girls um, as soon as they begin entering into intimate relationships. And femicide is the ultimate extreme end of intimate partner violence that results in killing. In terms of what we know about it, we know that about 50,000 women at least per year are murdered globally as a result of femicide. Now, I say that haltingly because we don't have really good numbers about femicide. We have uh, had a very difficult time as a research community figuring out how to measure femicide. And most of the time, what we're using are female homicides as proxies. And so it becomes very difficult to differentiate when is something a murder of a woman that is gender related and when is a murder of a woman not gender related. But the number that the global community has come up with is about 50,000 a year, and that's probably an underestimate. So I just say that we have some caveats about that. Now, in terms of risk factors, the risk factors we can think about in two different ways. We can think about the risk factors for the victim, and we can also think about risk factors for perpetration. So in terms of risk factors for the victim, um, there are a number of things that go into being a risk factor for women experiencing intimate partner violence generally. And those can include things like adverse childhood events, we call these ACEs. And so other traumatic experiences, including witnessing um, violence in their, in their family growing up, domestic violence in their family growing up, as well as having previous violent relationships with intimate partners and other traumatic experiences. We can also think of risk factors for perpetration. And as with the victim, these risk factors can take place at multiple levels. 
These can be risk factors at the individual level that it can include things like low self-esteem, low income, um, alcohol and drug use or substance use, um, and being history of being physically abusive. But we can also think about things like relationship factors, community factors and community violence, and then societal factors like misogyny, which is something that's present um, all over the world and we really need to think deeply about. You know, I'm listening to you describe these risk factors, and it makes me think that the situation in Brazil is really a perfect storm when it comes to gender-based violence. It's a country where societal gender norms skew traditional, machismo is very present in Brazilian culture and politics, and it's also a country with high levels of poverty, inequality, and violence in general. So maybe it's unsurprising that gender-based violence is a persistent challenge in Brazil, and I wonder if you could speak to that. Absolutely. So there's both good and bad news out of Brazil when we think about um, femicide and intimate partner violence more generally. So the bad news is that Brazil is ranked fifth in the world for femicide, meaning that um, of all the countries in the world, Brazil has the highest number of femicides. And again, the way that we're calculating femicide is probably an underestimate of the actual number of women that are killed as a result of their gender. Um, And we also know that intimate partner violence is very prevalent globally as well as in Brazil. So these were sort of, this is sort of the context of Brazil in terms of how often violence is taking place there, which is very frequently. Um, And in some ways, um, COVID has been, is a pandemic, but one of the things that COVID has brought to light has been called a shadow pandemic. And that is the issue of intimate partner violence as well as femicide. So what COVID has really done is it's really exacerbating existing conditions. Now, the the flip side, the good news out of Brazil before COVID is that Brazil has been pretty progressive in passing national laws against intimate partner violence and specifically against femicide. So in 2006, Brazil passed its first federal law focused on intimate partner violence, and that's a law that's called the Maria da Penha Law. It was a sweeping law that included um, the criminalization of intimate partner violence, and it also included mass education and mass communication about violence against women. And this becomes really, really important when we think about actually combating violence against women, not just criminalizing it, but also educating and transforming norms. So the Maria da Pena law was a huge success. And what we know about the success of that law is that 100% in the latest surveys that have come out, 100% of Brazilians know about the Maria da Pena law. That law was followed almost 10 years later in 2015 by an anti-femicide law, which actually criminalized and defined and gave harsher penalties for the gender-based killing of a woman. So those two things were major achievements for the country. But the the downside of that is that having a law on paper really means nothing if it's not enforced, if it's not operationalized. So one of the challenges that Brazil has seen is that it continues to have very high rates of intimate partner violence. And even following these laws, there have actually been increases in violence. So as researchers, we have to investigate whether these are actual increases in violence. And the theory behind that would be that perpetrators may be angry by being prosecuted by these laws and then retaliate with things like femicide or more severe intimate partner violence. But the flip side may be that there's more awareness about violence against women and maybe it's less socially acceptable 
And so maybe people are reporting violence more frequently, and we're just doing a better job of capturing how often it's taking place. So what this really brings to light is how much more research we have to do to really understand what's going on in Brazil. And what is going on right now? Because we've all seen in Brazil, uh, as in other countries around the world, that reported cases of domestic violence have increased in the last few months. COVID has really exacerbated the violence that's already happening in Brazil. So, for example, in Sao Paulo, which is a huge metropolitan area in Brazil, there was a 30% increase in restraining orders in just a one-month period of time. And in Rio de Janeiro, there was a 50% increase in violence. So these are city-level data. We don't really have good national-level data coming out of Brazil. Um, but we do know that uh, in, one, in one anecdotal study, femicide doubled in one month period of time. And overall, there's been a 15% increase in femicide. So what we can see happening is that things like shelter-in-place orders may be causing people to be in closer proximity. There are less places for people to go to. But also, women may be considering that maybe the pandemic isn't the right time to leave a relationship. So maybe they are literally sheltering in place and just trying to weather the storm of both a pandemic and a violent relationship. There are also other contextual factors that may be exacerbating violence. So we know that unemployment has spiked. A lot of people are out of work as a result of the global recession and the way in which many businesses have shut down as a result of COVID. And so unemployment and financial strain and stress are, are major contributors to violence within relationships. And we know that that's happening right now. We also know, and, and in the good side in terms of how Brazil is responding, is that um, many of the services that Brazil has in place, some of which took place as a result of the Maria da Peña law, is that those services have been considered essential services. So there's something called the Casa da Mulher, which is a 24-7 um, reception center for women that are experiencing violence that can offer quickly offer them legal aid, financial support, housing, health support. Um, those are considered essential service agencies and those are open. Um, there's a national hotline that continues to be open and um, there are other shelters that are also in place. So these things are open, but the concern is that women may not know that they're open or they may not feel confident that police may actually respond to their calls if violence is taking place. And these are concerns that existed in Brazil even before the pandemic, right? That women might not know the options that are available to them, that police might not take these complaints seriously or might not respond in a way that protects women from further violence. But this is also something that Brazil has been working on in recent years. So what are some of the policy measures that you have seen uh, that seem to be addressing this problem in a constructive way. Absolutely. So the two laws that I mentioned earlier, those are really the first steps. They're not the ends. They're, they're just the beginning. Um, and I would say that while Brazil has these services in place, like I mentioned already, the Casa da Mulher, those are primarily centered in urban centers. And so there are a lot of places in rural Brazil that do not have access to these services. And the same is true of some of the measures that are, are called um, delegacias, the delegacias da, da mulher, that are women's police stations that are supposed to be staffed with women police officers or officers trained and that are sort of supposed to be open and ready and willing to take reports of domestic violence. There have been reports 
um, that those, those police stations aren't open all of the times that they really need to be open, or that some of them have been folded into more general police stations, and that police may not actually be well enough trained or receptive to receiving reports of domestic violence. But in addition to that, there's, there's the further implementation of the law. So I think the place where the Maria da Peña law has been really successful has been in educating the general public about violence against women, and particularly through the use of telenovelas. And in one study I've seen, every time that there was a storyline about, um, about domestic violence or intimate partner violence within a telenovela, calls into the national hotlines would go up. But then after the storyline was over, those calls would diminish. They wouldn't diminish to the prior levels, but they wouldn't stay at the same levels. So there has been a public sensitization about violence, but then we get into the implementation of the law. So in order to actually fully implement the law, you have to be able to investigate and prosecute and, and, and follow through with the intent of the law, which is really addressing the root problem of violence. And so one of the things that I've seen in my own research has been the perception among both women experiencing violence as well as those in the community that there are many, many cracks in the system, that perhaps the police will come or perhaps not. Perhaps the police will believe a woman's story or perhaps not. Perhaps a prosecutor will bring up the case and perhaps not. And perhaps a judge will give a restraining order and perhaps not. But even if all of those things work, the law still isn't fully implemented because what happens when a restraining order is violated may be that a perpetrator may go to jail for some period of time and then he may be released and then retaliate with a femicide. And we had several instances of stories of that coming up in my qualitative data. And so the question then becomes, what is happening to change the norms? What is happening to perpetrators and how are they being treated in prison? We know that prisons and jails are not typically places where people are rehabilitated. In fact, they may, may become more violent and more criminalized. So we really need to think about more holistic approaches um, and alternatives, things like gender norms, um, you know, workshops with men and with perpetrators as well as with women to think about uh, what their perceptions are of power and violence within a society and how we can transform them. So some of the promising practices that we've seen and we've seen in other places, and I would say that this is more broadly across the board in intimate partner violence research and femicide prevention research, is that we really need to look at the issue of gender norms. So there's a whole body of work coming out of the group that's called What Works, and there are really some promising things that we need to do, but in order to change gender norms, these are really um, multi-sectoral approaches that need to address many, many actors. And that means it's complicated and it takes a lot of resources to be able to do that. But we can change gender norms within societies. But changing gender norms in Brazil or anywhere is a long-term solution. It's clearly important. But we also need to focus on more immediate interventions, right? There are a few other things that I would point out that are a little bit more immediate that are promising for Brazil. So the first thing is that Brazil's laws are really beautifully written. And in fact, there is a model law on um, investigating femicides that UN Women has put out. And that's something that's been broad spread across the Americas, which is where we've really seen some of the anti-femicide legislation spreading. And that needs to spread further. 
The other thing that I think is particularly promising for Brazil, and it's something that I'm very proud to have been involved with, is thinking about, beginning to think about femicide risk assessments and safety planning for victims of intimate partner violence. So femicide risk assessments are tools that can determine in a given moment a woman's risk of femicide. And there's a particular tool that's called the danger assessment that has um, been very popular and, and validated for this purpose. So it consists of a calendar and it also consists of 20 questions. And these 20 questions are based on known risk factors for femicide. They include things like whether the perpetrator owns a gun, whether he's threatened to kill himself or the woman, whether he's able, ever tried to choke or strangle. And these are some of the, the high level risk factors that really indicate that there's a, there's a probability that a woman may be killed by her partner. And so the danger assessment has been validated in the US context. And I'm very proud that I was part of the team that was able to do a formative content validation and translation of the danger assessment into Brazilian Portuguese. And so that instrument is now available and we're beginning to pilot test it in the Casa da Mulher in Curitiba, Brazil, in the south of Brazil. So we're very excited for that work and we're hope that it's a, we hope that it's a tool that we'll be able to use more broadly across Brazil. Um, it's something that can be used by women themselves to determine their own risk. Many times when women are in violent relationships, they may lose a sense of what's normal within a relationship, especially if they're experiencing extreme violence. So it helps women to get a sense of what is, what is normal or what is healthy within a relationship and to think about how frequently violence is happening. That's what the calendar is for, as well as how severe that violence is. And so that's something that will be available to women. And it's also something that law enforcement officials can use as well as health officials, right? So these are this is a tool that potentially police could use if they're considering arresting someone or that judges could use if they're considering giving a restraining order or not to give, get a bigger sense of what's going on in the big picture. As well as health actors can use this tool to help women figure out um, the kinds of resources and social supports that women may need if they're experiencing violence in their relationships. So that's one really promising tool. Another really promising tool is the idea of safety planning. And there's a safety planning app that's available in English that's called My Plan. And the My Plan app also includes a risk assessment, but it also helps women to devise a safety plan for themselves. And so what we're hoping to do is we're actually hoping to bring that, a version of that app into the Brazilian space through a translation and testing of that app as well. These are such great tools, especially the danger assessment. And we'll include a link in the description for this episode um, because it quantifies in a way the level of risk that women are facing. And I think women, and even as you mentioned, prosecutors and police are often unsure of just how risky a woman's situation is. It's easy to dismiss individual incidents of violence as just a domestic dispute. And so I think having these tools is really essential. And I think that touches on the fact that data is fundamental to understanding the challenge of femicide and intimate partner violence. In Brazil, a lot of the data is fragmented there is some data collection at the national level, some at the state level, and some at the municipal level, but it's not really unified. So how good is the data in Brazil, and what is the importance 
of data or the lack of data in driving change? I would just start by saying um, we have an old public health adage, which is if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. And that's basically saying if you don't have the data, you can't prove that something is happening. And I think one of the most transformative things that's happened over the last uh, 10 or 15 years with regards to violence against women is um, when the WHO did its, its multi-country study focused on violence against women. Brazil was one of the countries that participated in that study, which was in the early 2000s. And so that was a particular study that was um, that specifically focused on violence, and it used pop it was a population-based study, so a systematic sampling. And there were sites both there was a site in Brazil that was in both an urban and a rural location. That was true for each of the eight countries that participated in the study. So we were able to get really good data, both urban and rural, at the at a population-based level using very rigorous scientific standards for sampling to be able to make generalizable conclusions about how frequently women experience violence. And the biggest takeaway from that study was that one in three women will experience physical, sexual, or psychological violence in their lifetime. And that's huge. So when we think today about the COVID pandemic, and then we talk about a shadow pandemic, that number one in three is the shadow pandemic. Violence exists. Now, that WHO study, that World Health Organization study, provided us with a wonderful starting point. And there has been so much work that has been done in the time since then. One of the things that has happened in Brazil, which is a, a positive point of progress, is that previously Brazil um, participated in the USAID-funded demographic and health surveys. But the last time Brazil participated in that was also in the early 2000s. So there was about a 10-year gap where there were no population-based data from Brazil, um, either from uh, following the WHO study and following the last time Brazil participated in the demographic and health um, surveys. Now, recently, about a, uh, probably two years ago now, Brazil added a violence module to its own, its own version, its national-level version of the demographic and health survey. So this is a Brazilian population-based study that covers a huge range of health topics. Now, there's an advantage and disadvantage to that. The great news is now there's a violence module, and that means that some data are being collected systematically um, in Brazil about what's happening with regards to violence. The downside of that is because it is within, sort of housed within a larger survey, we know that violence will oftentimes be underreported when it's asked in conjunction about other topics. So we're still likely getting an underreporting of violence, even within that Brazilian um, household study, um, but it's good to have the data. We, we, we need to continue collecting data. It tells us where the needle is at, and it tells us where we need to move the data to. One of the things that I think has been extremely troubling to me about what has been happening during the COVID pandemic, and this is something that's been in the news um, recently, you know, here in early June of 2020, is that Brazil has not been reporting its COVID data, right? So there's been a lack of transparency around COVID cases, and that is extremely troubling to me because it really makes us wonder what is happening, if there's manipulation happening with the data, or whether the data are even being collected. Now, I think that I could 
easily make the same criticism of my own country. So I don't want to come across as, as just picking on Brazil. I think that it's equally important for all countries to transparently report their data and collect their data. Um, if countries have a commitment to the health of their citizens, then it is part of their responsibility and part of the social contract to collect these data, to transparently report on these data, and most importantly, to act upon the data and design policies and programs that are evidence-based so that we can actually begin to impact the health issues that we're concerned about, whether that's COVID or whether it's the issue of femicide and intimate partner violence. So before we end, I want to go back to a really fundamental question, which is where do we go from here? And I guess I'm looking for a bit of hope because gender-based violence, intimate partner violence, femicide, are real problems in Brazil and around the world. And I think policymakers have sometimes struggled to address this issue. So how do we change that? How do we move forward so that gender-based violence becomes less and less frequent? So the answer to that, of course, is extremely complex, but I would say that there's a lot of promise. So Brazil is a huge country. Um, and there are a lot of people that are working on this issue, both inside of Brazil and outside of Brazil. Um, there are many, many researchers. I would just make mention of one of my colleagues, Marco Signorelli, um, who has been testing the conflict tactics scale, which is another tool. He's adapted that and done a feasibility study in the south of Brazil. Um, that, so that's another tool similar to the danger assessment that I mentioned that can be used. But there are many other scholars within Brazil who are working on violence. Ana Flavia Oliveira is another scholar that works in the Sao Paulo area, um, and Lilia Blima. So those are two of the scholars that were involved with the WHO study that I previously mentioned. And they've really been leaders in this field for a long, long time. So I don't at all want to give the impression that, um, you know, that me as an American, that it's my place to go and solve a problem that Brazil has. There are many, many very smart people on the ground in Brazil who are doing important work and have been leading that work for a really long time. That said, I do think that there's a lot of work to be done. And I think that some of that work has to do with research. And as I mentioned, there are a number of really um, important researchers in Brazil but there are also a lot of community activists. And so the feminist movement in Brazil, particularly the Afro-Brazilian feminist movement, has been really, really strong. And I think that it's really important to recognize intersectionality and the ways in which misogyny and racism oftentimes work together as systems of oppression. So I would just point towards some of the leaders that have come from those movements, both the Afro-Brazilian movement and the Afro-Brazilian feminist movement within Brazil. Um, and I think that there's a lot of promise there. And fundamentally, I think that this is about culture change. There are so many beautiful and wonderful things um, that I love about Brazil and Brazilian culture. And I think that misogyny and machismo is not unique to Brazilian culture, but it is something that we need to think about seriously. And we need to begin to examine um, gender norms and think about gender norms change and what is acceptable. So one of my very favorite samba songs is by an artist called Marchnalia. And in the song, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful samba song. And in the song, there's a lyric, though, that when I think about it in English is extremely troubling to me. And it talks about um, love and jealousy and passion 
and how it sort of makes her crazy. And many times when we think about femicide, we hear it talked about as sort of a crime of passion. Um, and so we hear about the sort of love crimes or, or crimes of passion. And this is really, really problematic from a cultural perspective because what we're doing is we're saying jealousy and controlling behaviors and harassment are actually the same as love. And we just have to deconstruct that. And we have to say, no, this is not a reflection of healthy love. And so that's really, really deeply embedded. Um, you know, when we think about a, a, an intimate partner calling every day, that could be interpreted as showing care, but it could also be interpreted as controlling behaviors. And so context matters um, and culture matters and it matters very, very deeply. But fundamentally, we need to be able to begin to critique and think about what do healthy relationships mean, both for men and women, whatever relationships and whoever their partners may be, and think about how we can achieve that for a healthier society overall. Thank you, Dabney. That is a really powerful idea to end on. And I want to thank you for joining us and for having this discussion. I know I learn so much every time we speak. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spotlight Justice for Women. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be adding more episodes in the coming weeks and months. And for more information about femicide and gender-based violence in Latin America, visit our website, www.wilsoncenter.org slash gender-based violence. This podcast is brought to you by the Wilson Center, with support from the Center's Brazil Institute, Latin America Program, Mexico Institute, and Maternal Health Initiative. Our thanks to Linda Roth, John Tyler, and the rest of the Wilson Center's communications team. Special thanks go to Aaron Jones, who not only produced this podcast, but composed the music. I'm Anya Prusa. Join me and my co-hosts, Beatrice Garcia-Nice and Olivia Soledad, next time on Spotlight Justice for Women.